Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damien Garde, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters here in Boston. And I'm Adam Feuerstein. And Damien, it's so nice to look at you right across the studio. Likewise. Rebecca Robbins, unfortunately, is out this week because she's on a reporting trip in Southern California. It's Thursday, May 2nd, and here's what's on the docket this week. Something is amiss at one of biotech's household names. We'll talk about the potential boardroom drama at Biogen in the wake of a painful failure. The history of cancer immunotherapy is full of happenstance, sliding doors, and a fair amount of whiskey. Stats' Matt Herper will join us to talk about the fascinating tale behind a pair of revolutionary drugs. Meanwhile, in Beverly Hills, a bunch of rich people got together to talk, but sadly not take, magic mushrooms. We'll hear from Stats' Megan Akeshavan on this year's Milken Institute Global Conference. But first, a word from our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Medible. Medible provides the leading integrated cloud platform for data-driven and digitally-enabled clinical trials, allowing organizations to function as a connected team and bring effective therapies to patients faster. Learn more at Medible.com and get a demo today. That's www.medable.com. So things are getting a little weird over at Biogen. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, Damien. You know, so after that apocalyptic failure in Alzheimer's back in March, a lot of the company's shareholders started asking pressing questions about the future of Biogen. And more than a few people raised the idea of shaking up the company's board. And that brings us to earlier this week when Biogen proposed three new directors for that board. But they wouldn't actually replace anyone already on it. And that, according to a few analysts, is pretty unlikely to appease any unhappy investors. That's all to say that Biogen, which is, you know, one of the stalwarts of the biotech industry, could be headed for some turmoil. The situation, you know, we have a depressed stock price and a lack of shareholder faith, is ripe for an activist investor to come in and shake something up. But to understand what's going on at Biogen in the present, I think it's worth looking into the past and how the company got here. Yeah, Damien, like I think it was a year ago, actually, that you wrote a story. I think it was the 40th anniversary of Biogen's finding. Right. It was the This is 40 story for Biogen. And the narrative back then was how did a company that was once among the leading lights of the biotech revolution become so wedded to this Alzheimer's drug, which we now know has failed, and have a pipeline that generated so little faith among people on Wall Street? And I think one of the major bullet points in understanding the modern Biogen dates back to 2007. Speaking of activist investors, the company was taken on by Carl Icahn, perhaps the most famous one in history. And without relitigating that, the whole process resulted in Biogen CEO Jim Mullen having to leave and the board getting shaken up and activists demanding that Biogen sell the company. Yeah. And at that time, Carl Icahn actually placed directors on the board, one of those directors being Alex Denner at the time, pretty famous or well-known activist investor. At that time, he was sort of an acolyte of Carl Icahn who worked for Carl and joined the Biogen board just to shake things up, so to speak, right? Right. And so what I was told is that the mission critical objective back then was to trim Biogen down to where it could either be sold or it could at least be more fiscally responsible. And what's interesting is talking to people who were there at the time about, you know, how Biogen got to the point it is now. There was a point at which Biogen was a cash-rich company with a blockbuster multiple sclerosis drug. And a lot of people inside wanted to spend that cash expanding the pipeline on various things. But what they said to me is that 
the board that came in under the Icon administration was so committed to this austerity and getting the company sold that deals that they thought would have been positive for the future of Biogen would get nixed if they seemed like they wouldn't be accretive in the short term. And there's two sides to that story. Obviously, the board would say that they were just being good fiduciaries of shareholder value. But one of the prevailing narratives of talking to people about that era of Biogen is a lot of regret that the company didn't spend the money while times were good, because now that times are less than good, they're having trouble making the case for their independence. And so we bring this to the present. We have a situation now at Biogen where there are multiple sclerosis franchise, which has gotten larger, but is sort of under threat. There's competitive pressures. There's potential generic competition coming in for their leading MS drug, Tecfidera. And the pipeline, for the most part, people sort of consider it rather weak that, you know, in the sort of the post-Aducanumab era, what from the pipeline is really going to grow the company? And I should mention, obviously, Spinraza, their drug for SMA, is also probably facing competition relatively soon as well. So that's the situation that we find Biogen in today. Investors are not too happy with the company, and they've added three new board members. This seems like maybe the start of something, not the end of something. What do you think is happening here? I agree. I think, you know, the fact that Biogen took that step and the canned quotes from the chairman and from others included the phrase, we've heard shareholders issues and we're reacting to them with the addition of these three new board members. I'm not sure anyone who wants to see a dramatic change in Biogen's strategy is going to be happy that an 11-person board is now a 14-person board. An interesting facet of this is Alex Denner, whom you mentioned was a Carl Icahn accolade. He's still on the board. So if an activist challenge were to emerge, it would be a sort of activist on activist, or I don't know, almost like patricide of maybe one of his own acolytes would come in and challenge him. The future of Biogen is going to be fascinating for the next 12 months. So I think the sort of investor discontent with Biogen was voiced pretty clearly this week by Larynx biotech analyst Jeff Porges. He wrote a note where he basically called for several directors at Biogen to resign, including Biogen's chairman, Stelios Papadopoulos, who is you know, sort of a well-known, really well-known biotech figure. For a cell site analyst to go out and, and write a note and to basically say, look, we need serious, significant changes to the board. I want people to resign. I mean, I think he's not speaking alone. I think he's probably echoing some investors out there who are feeling the same way. Absolutely. I mean, and I don't mean this in any disrespect to Jeff Porges or cell site analysts, but theirs is an interesting business where they have to maintain relationships with management in order to get their clients access. So when they go on the record saying things like, maybe you ought to resign, I think that's a sign that upstream of their words, people on the buy side, actual investors are shouting it rather than whispering it. So that is a sign that there is more unrest out there than maybe we thought. And stepping back even further, I think what's going on in Biogen, it's echoed across sort of the large cap biotech uh, universe where the sentiment across that sort of small group of large companies is pretty negative right now. I mean, look, we've talked about Celgene a lot. Like, you know, Celgene grew until they couldn't grow anymore, and then they had to sell themselves, and now they're going to be folded into Bristol-Myers Squibb. We certainly have a lot of problems going on at Gilead. Amgen is also sort of facing the sort of same growth issues. So, you know, what's going on at Biogen is not necessarily unique to Biogen. It's sort of happening across all the large-cap biotechs, and it will be interesting to see certainly what happens at Biogen if there's sort of significant change, but also, like, the next group of biotech companies that sort of grow up into that large cap world. And it's just, you know, it's sort of this evolution where like, you know, it used to be like everyone wanted to be a big cap and maybe not so much anymore. That's a good point. I think one thing worth mentioning as well, sort of on the macro scale, activist investors have had a rough run of form in biopharma in 
recent months. We know that the Bristol-Myers Squibb deal for Celgene was challenged by activists. That ended up getting defeated, you know, somewhat easily, I think, in the end. And similarly, just recently, an activist investor was pressuring Allergan to separate the roles of CEO and chairman such that Brent Saunders would have less control over the company effectively. And that proposal failed. So maybe Biogen can kind of cross its fingers. And if an activist emerges, they'll be able to weather the storm. So what do you think is going to happen? I wouldn't be surprised to see if there's more turnover. You might see some board members resign. You may see some management leave. You know, those kinds of things are sort of the precursor to sort of larger strategic shifts in the company. As you've reported, Damien, it's a very, very conservative company when it comes to business development and acquisitions, and it's sort of gotten them into trouble. So I think that's kind of one of the things that people will look for to see whether or not they become you know, a little less conservative when it comes to acquisitions and partnerships. So ask any random person involved with biotech to identify the drug companies most responsible for the current era of cancer immunotherapy, and you'll probably hear some familiar names. Merck, Bristol-Myers Squibb, or Roche and Genentech. That's a proper list, except it omits one small California drug maker, which made a seminal contribution to the development of cancer immunotherapy in the late 1990s and early aughts. In fact, without the pioneering work of this company, drugs that harness the immune system to kill tumors and which today generate billions of dollars in sales, may have never gotten out of the laboratory. So the name of this unsung company that's sort of forgotten in biotech history is Metarex. And this week, our colleague Matt Herper wrote a story that traces the fascinating history of Metarex as told by one of its most celebrated founders, the scientist Niels Longberg. So Matt joins us to talk about Metarex and Niels Longberg. So Matt, let's start with the basics. Who is this guy, Niels Longberg? And why is his love of whiskey so important to the history of cancer immunotherapy? Well... Nils is the guy who led the development of first Yervoy, which was the first real successful immunotherapy drug, and then Optivo, both at Metarex and Bristol-Myers Squibb, which bought Metarex. But if you look at the history, actually, Nils and his colleague Alan Corman at Metarex really were kind of the point where a lot of this started. In fact, the team that invented Keytruda, the next big immunotherapy, was actually collaborating with him. So this is a lot of the story actually traces back to these guys first at Metarex and then at Bristol-Myers Squibb and the whiskey. And the whiskey. One of the most famous personalities in immunotherapy is Jim Allison, who won the Nobel Prize last year for the science behind your voy for melanoma. That deal happened between Metarex and Jim Allison and another company that everyone's forgotten called Nexstar, in part because after a dinner where they all went to meet, Nils took Jim back to the bar and bought a bottle of whiskey, and they stayed up drinking together into the earlier hours of the morning. And following that, Nils goes back to his room and scribbles down, pretty intoxicated, you've got to figure, everything about the conversation because he so badly wanted to develop this drug. I don't know about you, Damien, but I feel like Every good thing starts with a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> so many bad things, too. I was My mind flooded only with counterexamples. But, Matt, one thing I thought was fascinating about your story, you know, that anecdote and others, there were so many sliding doors moments and instances of happenstance where had something gone the other way, then, you know, not to be, like, melodramatic about it, but people's lives have been saved by some of these drugs, and they may not have come to fruition. Did that strike you while you were writing it? Oh, very much so. Both that... Things could have gone differently and none of these drugs could have existed. That there were several points where Keytruda, which is now the biggest drug in the class, almost didn't happen. And uh, it's also possible that Metarex could have gone it alone. A lot of people at the time thought they'd sold too early. Nils was telling the board not to sell. And even though 
patients might have actually done less well because you would have gotten less money pouring into the class, they could have become much more valuable or even stayed independent and become one of the biggest biotech companies in the country or the world. So tell us about how sort of Metarex and Bristol-Myers Squibb got together because they did have a partnership early on before Bristol ended up buying Metarex. Yeah, well, Bristol had this string of pearl strategy where they wanted to do a lot of collaborations. And Metarex was just kind of one of them. And I think most of the company didn't realize what they had. But they had this collaboration, they'd bet on it, and Metarex made a promise to the FDA and to Wall Street. They said that their clinical trial was going to show that a certain number of patients were going to have their tumor shrink and that that was going to lead to approval. And they missed that mark and the stock got punished. And a couple years later, after Pfizer had a similar drug and also pulled out, Bristol kind of bought Metarex because it was a good buy and it was cheap. So that's really what brought them together. Bristol believed in it, but they also saw, you know, it was kind of a value deal. And you mentioned before, Nils Longberg, who was so key to all of this, was against that acquisition, right? Yeah. Well, he was looking at the data coming in and you can't see the control group versus the drug group, but you kind of know how long melanoma patients live. And he was saying, look, it looks like the trial's taking a while to finish. That actually means we're likely to succeed. And he had a model to show this and he presented it to the board and they told him they were going to sell anyway. So I remember covering Metarex and kind of covering, you know, what now is your boy back then. And there was a lot of skepticism about, you know, there were low response rates and that meant the drug didn't work. And there were people who argued that there was a sort of long tail of survival that, you know, that we just needed to wait for those data to come out. And I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but, you know, Bristol bought Metarex for two, I think it was two and a half billion dollars, yeah. right? Which at the time seemed like a lot of money to some people. Others thought that the company was undervalued. But if you think about it today, I mean, Bristol got a great deal, right? Oh, my God. I mean, for a while, it looked like they were going to be wholly dominant in immunotherapy, in which case it would have been by far one of the best acquisitions of anything ever. But still, we're talking about that $2.5 billion acquisition is now generating $8 billion a year in revenue. You know, at a net present value, you'd guess that that's going to be what, at least worth $40 billion? And if they'd played their cards a little differently, it could well have been even bigger. One of the other interesting sliding doors moments, speaking of Optivo's waning dominance, when Metarex had what would become Optivo, they presented the results at a conference so other scientists could see it. And among those scientists were people who worked at Merck who had, somewhat unbeknownst to them, a very similar drug that they didn't see much promise in. And that is what gave rise to Keytruda, which is now, compared with Optivo, the dominant force in that market. It's amazing. And it's also really amazing the job Merck did in clinical trials where they were able to race ahead of Optivo and catch up and then kind of luck into being dominant in the market. I mean, really an amazing development story, but they really didn't know what they had until the Bristol data were out there anyway. So one of the reasons why you talked to Niels Longberg recently was because he's going to retire from Bristol. He was at Metarex, and then when Bristol acquired Metarex, he joined Bristol. How does he feel about kind of his role in this whole field? You know, Jim Allison won the Nobel Prize. How does he feel about his contribution? Well, in the industry, I think he is a known figure. If you talk to venture capitalists and mention him, they'll say, oh, yeah. He's a relatively humble guy, so he's not going to be the one to tell you, I feel like I should be getting more public credit. Also, it's kind of known in the industry, you work in the industry, you often don't get the public credit for these things. I and mean, when we can look at other examples like maybe the HPV vaccines, I mean, even the statins, no one really talks about the industry side inventors of a lot of products. Um, he's 
pretty proud of what he's done. He knows he was in the right place at the right time and that he accomplished something big. And I asked him about presenting those data at that meeting. And he said, you know, we started something big. And he was very proud of that, that it was a really huge change in the way everyone thinks about cancer. One of the other interesting nuggets in your story was that the guy didn't even get an undergraduate degree. He did not. He was missing a gym credit. But he had already published several scientific papers and I'd assume been accepted to one of the top labs in the country. So maybe be a little careful about what that means about getting a degree. I did make sure to finish my own gym classes so I could graduate. And look where you are now. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. What do billionaires Alex Rodriguez and Magic Mushrooms have in common? They were all in Beverly Hills this week for the Milken Institute's Global Conference. And stats Megan Akeshvan was there too. She was walking the hallways of America's answer to Davos, and she's here to tell us about it. Megan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, no, of course. It was, it was quite a treat, I must say. First of all, set the scene for us. What, what is it like to trek out to Beverly Hills to mingle with the biggest wheels of global capitalism? Um, it's a bit of a tight squeeze, honestly. It was at the Beverly Hilton, which is actually not well-suited for a large number of people in their business attire. So everyone was kind of squished together and talking about very important global issues from climate change to unicorn IPOs to dementia. So you heard a lot about the potential of magic mushrooms as a treatment for disease. Tell us more about that. There was a well-attended panel on psychedelic drugs at the conference this week. It was it was practically overflowing. This this large room where four experts in psychedelic medicine um, told some pretty serious investors about why psychedelics might be a potential medicine for depression and other such uh, disorders. But so what's the crux of that argument? Because I, I would imagine that the mushrooms that high school kids might be able to purchase off of one another are not necessarily patentable and FDA-regulatable products. So how do you translate the science suggesting that they might work to treat diseases to the actual world of developing proper pharmaceuticals? So first off, I didn't know anyone in high school doing mushrooms, <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, that being said, you know, there's there's just been anecdotal evidence for millennia that psychedelic drugs improve human function in some way or another. And, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of research that suddenly started taking place, but then it, it, it all sort of stopped. And now that research is reemerging, and there's some real validation saying that psychedelic drugs, much like ketamine, can improve conditions like depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. It's not entirely understood still how these things work, but studies from John Hopkins and Imperial College London, they're showing that they're not physiologically damaging. So, you know, there's there's potential as a therapeutic. So was there a discussion of like actual clinical trials or talk about planning stages for a clinical trial? Yeah, there was some discussion about that. There's a company called Compass Therapeutics, for instance, that's testing out a phase 2B uh, trial for uh, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms um, for uh, treatment resistant depression. And it's it's a pretty large study. I think it's about 216 people. So they should be you know, wrapping up soon. Um, and, and, you know, they're pushing forward into larger trials. Um, they're really trying to rigorously validate the substance, <laughs> you know, using the appropriate uh, regulatory pathway. And um, actually, I think it was last year, Compass got uh, an FDA breakthrough designation for psilocybin. So regulators are interested in pursuing this. I mean, and the fact that they've raised money, presumably from venture capitalists, suggests that people with money and hopefully with expertise think that this could actually be turned into a product rather than just being, you know, a derivative of a street drug. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And um, as I said, the uh, the 
conference room was completely packed with just very serious investors. Like there was not a single person who was like messing with their phone or whatever. People were wrapped and they were interested in like how this might become like a translatable business. And, and I mean, if you look at the marijuana industry, I mean, it's it's blown up in the past five to seven years. So this is sort of in a way a similar thing, except that they're going through the FDA instead of, you know, trying to legalize it. So how much of this interest that you observed at this panel was kind of due to ketamine and, you know, what's happened with J&J, you know, the recent approval of the J&J depression drug that's, you know, derived out of ketamine? Well, I, I do think that um, S-ketamine has really legitimized this whole you know, push to make psychedelics more clinically useful. I don't know if the generalist investor is super aware of what ketamine has been accomplishing in the past couple of years, but people were just interested. So maybe it, it did help. It, it certainly is not hurting the situation. I think that it's just making it a little easier for people who are in the psychedelics world. One thing that's been interesting to me when I've heard conversations kind of like the one you're discussing is that you'll often have the traditional scientists talking about biochemical pathways and neuroplasticity and et cetera. And then if you're in a sort of Silicon Valley investor world, you'll also have conversations that might make those scientists wince about microdosing and other such kind of unregulated things. Did you see that same kind of dynamic there? Well, I didn't actually see anyone wincing. That's the thing of it. Um, one of the panelists who is speaking, she's a UC Berkeley law professor. She actually taught a course on the war on drugs. And she also said on stage that she had very serious depression and she microdosed either psilocybin or LSD, I can't remember which one. But the point is, is that, you know, she was open about it, she said it, and no one seemed to be rolling their eyes. Like, the concept of microdosing seems to be taken pretty seriously. I think um, initially as a therapeutic, psilocybin would be given in a similar way that, like, ketamine is given, which is like a big dose that people have an experience with, as opposed to microdosing. But I think that both ways of taking that drug are being evaluated. And I guess maybe the last question, Megan, is uh, free samples? Man, I wish, but no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, guys. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, which psychedelic drugs you recommend. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.